0: I love that music. Thanks for not messing around with the music this week, Holesclaw.
1: I can't change the music. I can't change studios. I can't do any. I can't upgrade this dude, podcast in any way,
0: dude. I'm we have getting, an old curmudgeon as I'm part get, of the I'm theology
1: and mission. And if you want to know who that Which, is, it's not Jeff Holesclaw.
0: We're changing the title of the podcast though to Old Curmudgeon Podcast with Young Hipster. Theology the curmud- on Mission. Doesn't that have a ring to it? The Hipster and the Curmudgeon. Actually, that
1: doesn't have a ring to it. <laughs> Ladies and
0: gentlemen, we're glad to be back here at the Griffith Conference uh, Room here at Northern Seminary Library. And it's a beautiful day out again today. Uh, I noticed that you're yes, wearing uh, those, uh, whatever those uh, these are. These are my awesome Italian
1: th- thrift shop shoes. I call shoes. them the
0: shoes with the curly toes, yeah, folks. Yeah, they are. You have to see them to believe them. What's the topic For today
1: Well before we get to the topic We got a couple announcements here We got a couple of announcements If you really want Any of you out there Really want to see these fancy shoes That Dave is talking about He's really jealous in fact I am jealous Uh, I just want you to know That Dave and I Will both be at the Young Restless and Reformed Gathering in Philadelphia, May 3rd and 4th. We invite Look all of you for to the be man there.
0: with the curly toes.
1: If you really want to be a part of this podcast, we're going to be doing one live podcast as one of the panel discussions. Uh, we're going to we might have a QA. Yes, that's what uh, I think so. We're going to figure it out. So stay tuned for the specific details. But again, that's the Young, Restless, and Reformed gathering hosted by oh. Missio Alliance.
0: Yeah, and I'm a little worried about the tomatoes.
1: Yeah, so if uh, please don't stop by the the organic uh, local farmers market before you yeah, come out.
0: We got a bunch of Neo Anabaptists showing up at a Reformed conference. This should be interesting. All right, and uh, also I was
1: at I was in Philly just last week. I ran at the Ecclesia National Gathering. Ran into a bunch of people whom I love. It was fantastic, and people came up and they actually said I listened to your podcast. And I was like, no way, people listen to this podcast. But if you do. If you do listen to this podcast, I have two things I would ask of you, and I haven't made this ask in a while. One, please subscribe through iTunes or whatever media player you prefer. Please hit the subscribe button. Go navigate right now toward it so that you don't miss any episodes. And while you're there, and if you haven't done this, please, we really value your reviews, especially on iTunes. Open up your iTunes browser and navigate over to Theology on Mission hit the right review. Uh, We would really appreciate that. That's like uh, telling the world that you love us. And really, although Dave and I's egos probably don't need a lot more affirmation, we kind of need to work against that in our lives, but still, I have no idea what you
0: might mean by that.
1: All right. Well, that's quite a bit of buildup for our podcast today. From Northern Seminary, partnership with Missio Alliance. This is
0: Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsklaw and David Fitch. What are we talking about? Yeah, so today, today uh, I want to talk about a little skirmish that happened on my Facebook page. Uh, when what I, the master of non-antagonistic writing had
1: an antagonistic interaction. Well, you
0: know what? The sarcasm I, is, you know is dripping. You know what I'm trying to do on my Facebook page, and folks, uh, uh, my Facebook page is is kind of full with friends right now, but you can still follow it. But basically, I what I try to do is I just try to poke around at people's. Uh, common understandings and see if we might get to a little truth through exposing contradictions or issues, etc. So on this given day, and this was last week, or maybe it was the week before, I said when hierarchy characterizes a church plant, it will almost assuredly gather already conditioned Christians. When hierarchy begins a
1: church plant, you're just going to gather established christians
0: right it's going to be in other words another way to say that is it's going to be a christendom church plant and most often the way this looks and you think about it you get a guy most it's a guy it's a guy who's got some charismatic ability sometimes he has a wife some wow factor yeah it's a wow factor man and and by the way sometimes it's a wife and oh by the way they're always attractive which i've always kind of resented because you know what are you going to say, <laughs> Dave? <laughs> Resents good-looking <laughs> people. I've got to rely on my personality. What WE're can I say? With fancy shoes that <laughs> curl at the top. But you know, uh, you know what I'm saying. And it's it's a hierarchy, and it's built around one man's vision, and one man's preaching ability, and one man's personality, and and one man's uh, charismatic abilities to draw a crowd. It depends on one man's ability to speak and talk and manage and manage a set of programs as fast and efficiently as possible. And so a way that, so because of this, the way the church plant will develop will be through drawing people already attracted to that. Mm-hmm. Already attracted to that, that powerful preaching, already attracted to that way of respect and expectation to look up to said pastor. These are all things, by the way, that Christians who have been growing up in a church, even those who have slipped away and said, I don't want that. They're conditioned to respond to, come to, respect, and be part of.
1: Absolutely. And so when a church plant or a church movement begins with hierarchy... Chances are good that while you might minister to, to non-believers, that most of the time you'll be in the you'll be gathering into your orbit people who already have certain expectations uh, for this thing called church. All right, but that still isn't our topic, right? Yes, this is, is kind of on the way to our topic.
0: Well, I just want to expand on the way a hierarchy enforces a kind of top-down organization and a way of relating to people, whereas. What If we are going to engage non-Christians, people outside of the gospel, people outside of the church, it's got to be what I would call a more relational authority. It's got to be a presence and entering into a space and a releasing of giftedness and authority through relationships. Now, this might be uh, dangerous territory that I'm about to go into right now. All right, let's do it. But... You tell me what you think. I'm going to put this in the form of a question. I always do. Men, especially type A leader type men who initiate things, tend to be non-relational, directorial, uh, impositional, even coercive in their leadership styles. Women tend to be relational. They tend to listen better. They tend to dialogue and create Better. The woman leader is quite different than the male leader often. Mm-hmm. What would you say? Is I put a question mark on that. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean,
1: I generally agree with that. If certainly, we don't want to make an overly generalized sexist remark about how all men are blah, 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 and all women are blah, blah, blah. But I think there certainly is something to, to the relational differences, the relational processings uh, that go on uh, between the genders. And we can, you know, circle around and around on giving some sort of account of those differences. But certainly God made, you know, humanity male and female and that there's some sort of difference there that should be understood and appreciated as best as we can. And when it comes to leadership, uh, I think certainly men and women do lead very differently.
0: And so uh, this gets to my uh, second observation on uh, Facebook, which says, did you know that in non-established, now that means non-hierarchical, non-Presbyterian, Anglican, uh, Euro churches, in other words, holiness traditions like you and I are a part of, Uh that 30 to 60% of the churches founded in these movements were founded by women or alongside women, Mm -hmm. as leaders, that is.
1: And so this is at least getting to the topic that I thought we were going to do during this podcast, which wasn't so much a conversation of hierarchy, but a conversation of women in ministry.
0: Yeah, but what why do you think that is in the Holiness Movements versus the Euro tribal hierarchical churches of Europe? Why do you think the Holiness Church has had so many women planting churches and why was it such a huge success in a missional engagement?
1: You wanna know my answer?
0: I do. The Holy Spirit. Okay, that's a uh, indisputable answer and also accurate. I agree with you. So I would
1: say that in renewal movements within the church or new uh, breakouts of ministry and unreached people that most often you have connected with that uh, uh, a renewed reliance on the work of the Spirit And all the the movements historically that are most open and receptive to the work of the Spirit are simultaneously open and receptive to women in ministry leadership positions. And so usually uh, a really strong reliance on the work of the Spirit and an expectation that the Spirit's at work in palpable ways is usually correlated to a rise in the openness to women leading. So this is true of the Charismatic and the Pentecostal Renewals um, coming out of Azusa Street on both on the East and West Coast. Uh, our own tradition, the Christian Missionary Alliance, had a huge uptick in its early years in women leaders. Even the Assemblies of God was started by um, Amy, and I always forget her middle name, McPherson. Simple McPherson. Right, but both our tradition, the AG tradition, and others, when they become more established, when the Holy Spirit fire kind of burns down a little bit, you find out the men step
0: up and take... Most of the leadership roles... I would women call that Christendom. When they become then, more established, they become more Christendom-based. They are now organizing existing Christians as opposed to engaging in mission. Then who's going to step up to the plate and say this is the way it's got to be done and i got to be in charge? Most naturally, a
1: patriarchal society? A Which hierarchically
0: a, engaged process whereby we lose the relational powers leadership powers of women in ministry. And this is, I think, a big problem for us today because we in the Christian Missionary Alliance, we in all these other holiness denominations that have lost our sense of just how Uh, how the Holy Spirit must guide the gifted nature of the church, and everyone must be involved, men, women, across all borders, divisions, whatsoever. We've lost that, and we've lost our mission in the process.
1: All right, so let's start the conversation over a little bit. So we started off with hierarchy in the midst of church planting. Why don't we dig the tunnel from the other end and talk about the typical options that we have for understanding men and women and their relationships. So the two major ones are complementarianism, and egalitarianism, right? Now, what are some of the conceptual tools and understandings that fill out those positions? Well, you know,
0: I'm always going to oversimplify this, but egalitarians are focusing. Wait, start on the okay. Start wherever you want. Go ahead. Right. The egalitarians are focusing on the equality. Obviously, it's in the word. Uh, the equality between men and women in uh, ministry, and 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 so I, I think there's been a lot of critique out there, and I'm not even a big I'm not a fan of the word egalitarian, but it tends towards sameness, it tends towards individualism, it tends towards democracy. Um, you know, democracy, meaning the way we think about uh, all of us participating in a form of government. And, uh, and that's where the word egalitarian, I think, comes from. So like the differences between people, but
1: the differences even between genders becomes kind of very muted. And I've, I know I've heard a lot of egalitarians talk about how, you know, biblical manhood or biblical womanhood just means Christ-likeness. So the more we become like Christ, the less we need to worry about what it means to be a man or a woman, right? Have you heard these right. types of things?
0: And so I, I, I guess... I guess, uh, Which the, certainly is not a bad thing. The starting we all need to text, be like Christ. The starting text for the egalitarians is Galatians 3... Uh, 28. 28. 26. Uh, there's neither male nor female, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so it's almost like uh, the sameness or, or the distinction, the gender distinction has been lost. I don't think that's true of the evangelicals for biblical equality, Um, But I do think that, let's say, what I was talking about earlier, the Euro high church traditions that have wanted to include women in ministry, they they end up including women into a form of government which is excessively patriarchal or hierarchical. In other words, they're inviting women into the mistake that men made instead of obliterating the hierarchy in the first place.
1: Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, and so we're introducing women into a, a broken system and calling that equality when really maybe we should be doing something and that's different. And
0: the, that's the error I would like to try to avoid. All right. Well, before
1: we give that option, what is uh, the complementarian kind of view? In so the complementarian, of course, is, stre- is
0: stressing gender difference. Um, and their main text is uh, 1 Timothy 2, 27. Don't know. Uh that a man a woman is not to teach or usurp authority over a man and therefore they're playing on uh, with the various parts of the creation that are part of the verses, both in uh, in uh, 1 Timothy 2 and in First Corinthians 11 or 7, I should say, boy, I, I should have done better in my Bible quizzing. And, and right now you're the one looking up the texts and I'm just kind of doing. First it Timothy
1: 2:11, a woman should learn in su- quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. That's First Timothy 2, 11 and 12.
0: Right, and in the process of emphasizing gender difference, which I am not opposed to, I think men and women are different until the eschaton. And then they're even different, but their roles change. But uh, having said that, what happens is there's an institution of patriarchy that's carried out from the fall into the redeemed community of the church. And so we extend... The, the, the Christian community is redeemed, and marriage is redeemed, and there is no more patriarchy. But somehow, the patriarchal uh, uh, gender differences of the fall are imposed into the Christian life. I'm, uh, this is what tends to happen with complementarianism. There are complementarians which overthrow, or at least try to overthrow, patriarchy and hierarchy.
1: Right. So you end up with, back to our opening question for church planning, You sometimes you can end up with an understanding of church leadership as the man in charge who, like a monarchy, or you could flip the script and try to make it a democracy where everyone was the same. There's no differentiation. Uh, you know, everyone has a voice or a vote or something like that. And so uh, there, in a sense, women are elevated into an equal place. But We often say it's not, uh, the church is not a democracy. It's not uh, a hierarchy or a dictatorship or monarchy. It's not a monarchy, not a democracy, but a... Pneumatocracy.
0: Which brings us back to the spirit. So, right, the gifts become the central uh, place from which authority of the kingdom emanates, not an office, which is a hierarchical place, in both egalitarian and... Complementarian, but rather the mutuality of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are recognized and empowered through various uh, offices, which are always post recognition of the gifts. And what this means is if the, if the gifts are the center of the authority of the church, we know from the Pentecost sermon and the quoting of Joel chapter 2 that the Spirit is poured out on men and women, and they shall both prophesy. Son, Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And that the gifts are given equally to men and women. And so it makes absolutely no sense to say that women are somehow excluded from, from the ministerial authority of preaching, teaching, and all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit.
1: And when you look at the New Testament record in Paul's letters as well as in Acts, you see that many women were in charge of households that were meeting, uh, at, which means they were in charge of the church that was meeting in their house. It's not like, you know, like in our church, uh, we have like meetings in people's houses, but just because you're meeting in one person's house, someone else could be in charge. But in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. If you were meeting in someone's house, you were the one leading the whole group, right? So there's accounts of uh, women who are church leaders, uh, Paul talks about the different co-laborers and names several women who evidently were teaching and preaching, right? So you have an extensive list of women who were engaged at the same level of ministry as Paul and the other uh, apostles, um, and so, excluding one or two passages from First Timothy and elsewhere, there seems to be a very strong witness that the women were engaged in all these different offices. Well, what I
0: say about First Timothy and uh, First Corinthians fourteen, which I do not agree with Gordon Fee on, that that's a, what I uh, what do you call it a redaction uh, into the text. But mm-hmm. I, uh, I actually think what's going on there is a confusion of women's roles in the New Testament community and women's roles in marriage. Not that women's roles in marriage are in some way subject to patriarchy, but rather there are roles of men and women in marriage and that they are using their newfound authority to overthrow the roles they have in marriage. So 1 Corinthians 14 says, women be silent in the church, take it home to your husbands. It appears like they were standing up Mm -hmm. and using their newfound authority in the community to... um, uh, exert some authority over their husbands outside of their marriage, over their marriage. Paul is saying, no, take it home. Likewise, in First Corinthians chapter 11, uh, which I think is a central text for us and mm-hmm. neo-Anabaptist people who are trying to understand this third way of understanding men and women in ministry, he says, women, wear a head covering as an authority unto you. Don't deny your gender difference in front of all these men. But wear a head covering as an authority. Recognize and be uh, culturally uh, aware of the fact that your hair is... Um, um, uh, expose, exposing your hair in a east culture is a problem for men and women in that day. Wear head covering so as to have authority in your community. Don't deny your gender difference, but rather bring it to your full authority in the church. And I often say... Women, to women, as well as men. But I say to women, we don't want you to stop being women in order to enter into the authority of the church. We, it's because you are a woman that we men need you alongside of us. It's men and women together in ministry. So in uh, synopsis remember, form, hey, remember that one time when I kind of got mad at Life in the Vine in a leadership meeting uh-huh. when you had scheduled... That one time. All right. <laughs> the one time where I got mad over the fact that you had scheduled like three, four women in a row to preach in a row on uh, uh-huh. Sundays, and I said, that's that's not helpful. We need men and women. So people come here and yep. they all hear women. It's going to be imbalanced. We need men and women, not just women, not just men. Men and women co-laboring together in the shaping of a community into his kingdom. So in summary of maybe
1: this third way as we wrap up, uh, we need to avoid... Maybe an underrealized eschatology, if I could talk in these theological terms, uh, a sense uh, where we are always looking to the past. We're looking to, you know, maybe a certain reading in Genesis one or two that uh, determines church leadership, which is a complementarian view, where men and women, uh, men are uh, in a hierarchy above women. But then there's also maybe this overrealized eschatology of the egalitarian camp, where all gender differences are annihilated and lost. And so this third way that we talk about is how is, is trying to articulate a way of affirming the equality of men and women, and yet also affirming their differences, affirming in some fashion that the marriage relationship has its own integrity that we need to preserve. And yet that integrity shouldn't over-determine Uh, how men and women react or interact with each other in the church it's a very difficult tension to hold together and yet we're trying to live in that eschatological kind of in-between space
0: and that's uh, and, and and i feel like that tension is too easily given up for the sake of convenience or efficiency and uh or and it looks like this when you invite a woman in a ministry, suddenly she starts looking like the rest of the men, talking like the rest of the men, acting like the rest of the men. I think that happens in corporate culture a lot, by the way, in America. Not all the time, but sometimes. Or the
1: reverse could happen, is that the only men that are allowed in leadership are ones acting you know, more of the women. You know, They're more soft-spoken. They're not A-type leadership. So that's probably a rarer case, but that is a possible...
0: Well, the thing that I just resent is uh, that we don't allow women to flourish as women in everything Mm -hmm. that means. And I do not want to over-stereotype because there's a certain part of gender difference which is inherently cultural. And by the way, we should critique the culture for where it gets gender wrong, and we should also extol the culture... Encourage the culture where it gets gender right and gender uh, differences working well. So, anyways, it's not easy. It's not, this is why we need to discern mm-hmm. all these things on the local level in leadership as a ch- as church communities. Well, we're kind of running out of time, but I feel like a big
1: missing part of this is for you and I to invite some women uh, pastors and leaders into a conversation here. Um, where we could actually talk about well, what does this look like practically? How do we support women in ministry, in order to affirm them as women, affirm them as leaders? What does that look like, especially in the evangelical context, where I think it's pretty difficult? Um, I know a lot of women leaders in the evangelical world are uh, conflicted because they feel like they have gifts to offer, but in a complementarian framework, there's no place to give those gifts. But theologically and practically, they don't want to become mainline liberals because did you have to they call, don't call our friends
0: mainline liberals?
1: Well, you know, they don't, you know, but there's, there's a really hard place to find uh, affirmation. I mean, thankfully Northern Seminary is a great place for affirming women in ministry. Uh, but those places are hard to find. Uh, so we should really, after Easter in a couple of weeks, maybe we should figure out a way to do a round table. We can invite yeah, and of course, some people in from Life on the Vine or
0: uh, we always Peace got, of Christ. It always takes a little extra organization and work to get people to come together and do our podcast but we need to work on that and i and i know you're looking at me so you're
1: saying we're lazy we're lazy podcasters we can own that we can own that we're lazy podcasters but we really should do this
0: we should we should and uh so uh juliet if you're out there she is and and maybe Jean or lisa mm-hmm. or, or maybe your wife said yeah who's has a lot of experience in ministry? Uh, maybe we all ought to get together and do a podcast. I am going to be at Life in the Vine since I mentioned that you never invite me up to uh, preach. I know, Vine. it worked.
1: Dave complained uh, a couple of
0: weeks ago Hey, you never invited uh, me uh, up. You didn't of- call me. Some, nope. uh, actually, Juliet got a hold of me <laughs> and asked me, which is stunning, by the way. Thank you, Juliet. <laughs> uh, but maybe, uh, maybe after church on uh, gathering on that Sunday, uh, we can do a podcast. With That's Juliet. a great
1: idea. All right. Uh, so, again, Uh, young, restless, and reformed coming up in about a month, month and a half May 3rd and 4th in Philadelphia please uh, subscribe to this podcast and write some reviews, but to wrap up let's do what are you reading now Uh, Dave, you say that I've already mentioned this but I can't help it, it's what I'm actually reading right now, so I just got to bring it up again but it's a book by John Levinson called Sinai and Zion an entry into the Jewish Bible he's a Jewish scholar, he's not a Christian scholar uh, but it is a reflection on the different covenants at Mount Sinai and what it meant for uh, Israel as well as uh, Jerusalem and the temple on Zion and the two different ways that those two locations kind of play off and around each other. It's a fascinating book. It is pretty academic, but man, it but is that's fantastic. A huge, that,
0: that book I it's used. foundational. I don't know if you helped me. Uh, locate that book or what, but that book, be, the, the, the relationship between the presence of God and the temple in, in Israel and the presence of God and the rest of, of the world is a key relationship that I used in my book, Faithful Presence, which is coming out in November. Uh, for me, I have been reading Michael Gorman's The Death of the Messiah and the Birth of the New Covenant. It's a book from last year. Uh, he, uh, the tagline is a not so new model of the atonement I love this book uh, there's, Amen. Nothing, there's nothing totally revolutionary I would say about it but yet it gives such a well grounded foundation to understanding the fullness of the atonement that, that can fit in a version and I emphasize a version of the substitutionary atonement into a well grounded framework which takes away some of its individualistic transactional properties it's a, it's a great book Absolutely. But, yeah, it's Next. very readable Next uh, podcast, I'll talk about Fleming Rutledge and her new book on the atonement. Oh, I just heard about this book. Have well, you been reading that? Uh, I got a copy of it. Uh, I've been reading Jason Michelli's review of it on McKnight's blog. So I just heard of it. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, that is it. We're calling this podcast a wrap. We will see you all uh, or we'll listen to you or talk to you all on the interwebs uh, for sure. This is Jeff Holsklaw, David Fitch. Signing off from Northern Seminary.
0: Griffith Conference Common Room Mike. Oh, I
1: oh my up. goodness. I screwed See, that up. You screw it up every time You will <laughs> not let us conference room. You will not let us get a real studio, but you don't even know what room we're in. Come on. Come on. All right, that's a now, ladies and
0: gentlemen.